When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and we have back on the program for his first appearance this cycle, Maxwell Baumbach. Uh, Maxwell, how are you doing this fine afternoon? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here and uh, get into a guy that I'm really excited about, and it feels like people are also starting to get excited about him. So just kind of a a fun time in the draft cycle where, where guys start to sort of rise up that weren't on everybody's board at the beginning of the year. And that's, that's kind of the guy I like to focus on. So. so, yeah. And certainly we will be talking about someone who I admittedly did not have on my board at the start of the season, but Jameer Watkins out of Florida state. And so you wrote for your most recent article for no ceilings, Check it out. If you haven't already on how Jameer Watkins is doing everything. And I do want to sort of start with the third sentence of the piece and go in a bit of depth there. Imagine the complimentary wing player for the ideal complimentary wing player for the modern NBA. Butchered the sentence three words in. Fantastic. But anyway, (laughs) point being, uh, as you mentioned in the piece, that guy sounds a lot like Jameer Watkins. And this really interests me. So I'm curious to sort of get a general take from you before we dive into the specifics. But why did you choose to write about Jameer specifically for this piece? So I, I just have like a real affinity for guys that get better, which I know sounds really kind of basic and simple and obvious in some ways, but uh, Jameer is a guy that's been on my radar for a while. So like his freshman year, he was on that VCU team that had both Bones Highland and Vince Williams Jr. on it. The next year where like Vince Williams really pops off, he had an ACL tear, didn't play at all. Um, so like he was never really on radars because like his first year it was like yeah he's a he's a bench player on a team with two guys that if you're watching that's you're gonna be paying attention to next year vince williams jr is there everyone's kind of all eyes on him uh and even if you know he had been healthy i doubt his role would have been much bigger and then last year i just don't think people were super plugged into what was going on at vcu uh but he had like this nice kind of incremental growth season where um started about half the games for them but really showed that he could lock guys down on the defensive end. Um, Got better as a jump shooter, despite missing an entire calendar year. Um, And I thought he showed some nice stuff as a connective passer. And he was like a clear transfer up target because he has the frame that he does at six, seven to 10. Like you don't have to, he was going to play, I think whatever school he went to, no matter what. But I think the progression from energy guy off the bench at a mid-major to occasional starter for a mid-major to the guy on a power conference team uh just really kind of blew me away i i covered him during my no son and turn series but i kind of honestly thought it would it would probably be more of a two-year process before he was a guy that like i would circle back to and be like hey he could get drafted this year um i always thought he would be a top 100 guy whenever he eventually came out but i think at this point he is a much more legitimate 2023 prospect than people are are kind of realizing. So I wanted to dig in on that third sentence that I butchered, and I'll try again just to lead back into it. But imagine the ideal complementary wing player for the modern NBA. And I wanted to start here because, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around this class as, you know, not being as strong as some recent classes. And I think what that leads into more is just sort of talking about how Jameer Watkins is less of a gamble than a lot of players in a way, you know, and there's sort of an aspect, especially in a draft class like this of, okay, either you're taking a wild, wild bet that somebody is going to put a lot of things together that they haven't previously, or, you know, as you talked about earlier, you can bet on someone who's consistently gotten better, but, 
also is someone who, and you know, this is something that I talk about all the time on this feed of someone who has multiple different potential avenues to earn playing time at the NBA level of, you know, okay, so you're not going to bring this guy in and expect him to be a 25 point a game scorer. But I would argue that in this class, if anybody is going to be scoring 25 points a game within their rookie contract, it's probably going to be on a really bad team, right? It's not going to be, you know, we're not going to see, say, I don't know, Alexander Saar being a 25 point per game scorer on a team that's, you know, above like a 20 win team in the first few years of his career. And so with someone like Watkins, you know, the question becomes, okay, at what point in the draft do you decide, you know what, there are a bunch of potential upside swings on the board. There's a whole lot up in the air. There's not all that much certainty in this class. How far down do you go before you say, you know what, this is someone who's consistently gotten better and has a clearly projectable role to the NBA. It'll be interesting to see if those kind of players maybe get overdrafted more this year because there's so little certainty that the few bits of certainty you have might be worth using more draft capital than usual. Yeah, it's so funny. I like I I feel like I've had this conversation with so many people in the last couple of weeks where it's just like people will be like, Oh, where do you have this guy on your board? And it's like I had Watkins around like 50 the last time we submitted boards. And it's like, but even in the in the weeks since then, there's so many guys where it's just like, I gotta get this guy out of here. Like this guy, <laughs> this guy stinks, like this guy's not putting up numbers, this player's struggling to produce, this guy's not even playing for his college team. Like there were so many guys that I, I really wanted to be optimistic about early in the year that now we're starting to hit that point where it's like, all right, I got to pull that guy down here. I got to put this guy down here. Maybe I feel better about this guy in a two ways, a gamble versus a four-year guaranteed contract in the first. Like that's going to be a really kind of interesting predicament uh, to monitor because I, I think there's, this is another thing I've been thinking about that's similar, but kind of unrelated. Is this going to be a draft where, like last year, a lot of guys say, hey, you know what? I'm not crazy about my stock right now. I'm going to go back to school. Or is this going to be the opposite? Is this going to be a year where everybody kind of jumps in the pool and it's like, well, the draft is bad. So maybe I'm going to get picked higher than people think. Like it's it's going to be a very, very fascinating kind of couple months building up to the draft uh, and seeing who does and doesn't stay in. But yeah, I, I think to kind of circle back to where this all started uh, with Jameer Watkins. Yeah, I, I do think to your point, he has multiple avenues. And I think that if he was a little bit more dominant on a better team, like a guy like a Kevin McCuller, it would be easier to be like, yes, first round for sure. I think as it is right now, Watkins probably trends closer to the second round. Um, but there's a lot of time between now and June, uh, right now I'd feel best about him kind of early second. Um, but I think it, it raises an important philosophical question. Cause I think if Watkins ends the year diet shooting around 36% from three, I do think there's a real first round argument. Yeah. I mean, the thing with the three point percentage is, you know, the one hand it's, it's one of those things that I struggle with, with a lot of prospects of, how much of this, you know, jump in percentage is genuine development and improvement and how much is just the sample size of three-point yeah. shooting in a college season is so small. I mean, I feel bad every time I say it, but it works as, you know, a little shorthand of me calling it the Derek Williams principle of, you know, sometimes someone just gets really hot for two months at the best possible time and they ended up going second overall people thinking oh he's a 40 percent three-point shooter it's like yeah he hit 28 of 70 one year congratulations he never shot again right Mm -hmm. and so that's the thing where especially with someone like Watkins where the rest of his game is so well-rounded it's like the shooting you know shooting as a swing skill is you know something that's a cliche that's been beaten to death and revived and then beaten to death again but You know, I think especially with someone like Watkins, it's easy to see the development across the board and therefore easy to buy into the shooting as being on an upward trajectory. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's stabilizing at, say, 35% for the season is a very different story from he gets hot for a couple weeks and it goes to 38%. And also the flip side of he gets cold for a couple weeks and it goes to 30%. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to shoehorn this in because I want to talk about Keegan Murray. But, you know, he went from 30% three-point shooting on the season. Then Saturday night, he went 12 to 15 from three-point range. And all of a sudden, he's at 36%, right? And sample sizes are even smaller than that. So the variance is always something that's difficult to try and figure out. But when the general trend of the rest of their game is, you know, positive in that way, it's at least a little easier to buy into that than it might be for some other prospects. 
certainly and like it, it's such a great point to make with keegan too because like we are that was i believe game 20 for keegan and like in a college season we are getting just like a little more than twice as many like a little less than twice as many games as that so like yeah. the sample sizes are always going to be really fragile and i think that's where uh with the guy like Watkins, sort of looking at the larger sample and extrapolating off of that will be important i think the overall catch and shoot numbers are going to be important like if he's making his catch and shoot shots that's going to be so much more projectable to what his nba role will be um and i believe last season he was around like 35 percent on those so like just steady improvement there i'll take like if he ends the year like 39 on catch and shoots i'll be okay with it even if the overall percentage is a little bit lower um but with just the amount of spacing that is required in the NBA, if he does end the year around like 31, 30, 29, then maybe it is a, a back to school kind of situation. Yeah, I completely agree with the point about the catch and shoots. I mean, again, part of the idea of him being the perfect complimentary wing is, you know, the perfect complimentary wing is maybe someone who doesn't have a complete lack of an in-between game, right? But that's not where they're going to be getting the majority of their shots, right? They're not going to be... You know, you're not going to have Jameer Watkins running pick and roll 10 times a game and shooting off the top of the key, like shooting 27 footers off the top of the key, right? He's mm-hmm. going to be mostly used as a catch and shoot guy. And especially with what we'll get into in a moment with his finishing, it's really just that he needs to be able to make defenses pay when he's unguarded beyond the three point line and make them pay when they charge out too hard on him. But the number of times that he's going to be asked to create a shot for himself in a short shot clock situation is mostly just going to be desperation looks, right? It's not going to be, yep. this is the design of the offense. Certainly. Yeah. I, I think it's all just sort of like, he's got a lot of icing on the cake skills to his game that if like the catch and shoot is there, that's all just, okay, great. And now, yeah, if you chase him off the line, he can make you pay. If he needs to run a second side, pick and roll in a pinch, he can do that. If he has to bail you out at the end of the clock, he has reps doing that too. Like he's got a really nice mid range pull up game. Um, that he that he started to show off last year um he's not like the worst pull-up three-point shooter in the world <laughs> like yeah. he's he's comfortable taking them when he has to so there's yeah there's things to get excited about uh beyond that. i think that's the perfect way of putting it comfortable when he has to but the point being you know if that's not an area of his game that expands beyond comfortable when he has to it doesn't need to right yep. as opposed mm-hmm. to you know need is strong for the catch and shoot numbers being in the you know mid to high 30s but it's much more imperative to making the rest of his game work than just being able to you know be a Steph Curry Dame Lillard Trey Young self-creator beyond the three-point line exactly yeah that's a that's a great way of putting it and like he's yeah because he is the size that he is like it's not it's imperative for him to be a like well-rounded pull-up threat like pick and roll operator as it is for somebody like dj wagner who sure. like yeah. does not have that like margin for error. like that's something that has to be there in his game with jameer because there is so much else there's the size the athleticism the length the finishing the defense it's it's all right if he's a league average three-point shooter so speaking of the finishing let's get into that now mm-hmm. and you know sort of mentioning earlier the steady all-around improvements in his game this is not steady all-around improvement this is a massive massive leap forward and you make the note in the article he was at 40.5 percent make rate of his shots uh at the basket in the half court Mm -hmm. and to go from there which is really really concerning honestly to me to taking a similar percentage of the shots but being in the 55 percent range Mm -hmm. that is a massive massive difference and especially you know in terms of the shooting the concept of what we were just talking about of can you do something if you're forced off the line right like finishing at a 41 percent rate around the basket is not going to cut it for a small guard it's definitely not going to cut it for a wing who you actually want to be attacking closeouts so that Mm -hmm. honestly is a huge huge turning point in terms of you know, the viability of the rest of his game and a clear, you know, clear factor in why he's been as successful this year as he has. Yes, it's been, it's been really exciting to to see that sort of development. So I, like I mentioned in the, in the spreadsheet sleepers piece I did on plus, I've done like a lot of work kind of just seeing like historical numbers for prospects. And one thing that I've seen that is sort of encouraging that I noticed is that guys that are poor finishers, Generally, if they have size and good athleticism, they are the guys that are more likely to turn it around, especially at the next level. Um, so like 
the mo- the easiest example would be a guy like Jalen Brown. He was just like a really poor finisher in college. And it's like, yeah, but you look at the body, you look at how he gets off the floor and like, there's some touch there. Like that's a guy who you can sort of, I don't want to say comfortably bet will become a good finisher at the NBA level, but like has a much better chance to than, um, I, I can't think of this enough to the top of my head, but like if like Luke Kennard was like bad at the rim in college, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's not a guy that like, you can just think, Oh yeah, no, like all of a sudden he's going to really figure that out and become like a dynamite finisher at the next level. Um, I would have, I would have gone was, with, Oh, Oh yeah. Uh, so like a, another, a better example might be, um, Oh yeah, no, Luke Kennard was a bad finisher in college. That's a, that's the example. Luke Kennard is the guy that we'll yeah. use. <laughs> I was gonna go with Buddy Heald because there's a yeah. similar complete lack of ability to dribble that he had in common with Jalen Brown. But the difference between Buddy Heald in terms of, you know, basically everything other than shooting touch and Jalen Brown's frame, you know, his ability to finish through contact, all of that, very, very different. But, you know, I think part of it for Jameer is his handle is nowhere near as bad as Jalen's was at Cal, True. which, you know, is a huge, a huge part of being willing to buy into, you know, improvements in finishing around the basket of, okay, you know, he's someone who can at least get to the basket reliably. For sure. And he is four years older too, which, which helps, yes. is really like our three years old. I think he's, he's 22 right now. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I think that it's been just an exercise in, being a little bit more selective and more cautious. Cause like you mentioned, like the handle is really solid and he's able to get where he wants on the court. I think the issue before was that he was getting there maybe when he shouldn't have and, and taking a lot of shots that he shouldn't have at the rim. He had a really bad tendency to just like charge straight ahead at the basket and weak side help would come over and he would just kind of go up with it anyway. It didn't really matter who was there. Um, he wouldn't really look to contort. He would just kind of, barge right into guys and hope that he would get a foul call and he would get it a decent amount of the time because he, he, you know, is a, is a pretty high free throw rate player. Um, but in doing so, he would force a lot of bad shots, right? There wasn't going to be a whistle uh, coming his way. So this year he's been a lot smarter about that sort of thing. The times where he gets to the basket, um, he is contorting. He's showing a little bit more craft getting there he is uh, kind of disguising his drives and faking things off to keep the defense a little bit more on their toes so that he's not meeting as much resistance at the rim. Um, the, the touch had looked solid at points in the past, but now that he's getting himself just better, cleaner looks, it's, it's a lot more obvious. Like, oh yeah, you, you can be a good finisher. And I think that's something that we see with a lot of prospects. I don't have an easy touchstone like I do for the Derek Williams principle, but there are a lot, a lot of athletic wings in the like six, six to six, eight range who their entire high school career, they're just dunking over everybody. Yeah. And so there's no need to try and finish with craft, right? Cause they're just going to be able to elevate and score over everybody. And then year one of college comes around and, you know, they're making all those same wild charges to the basket, but all of a sudden there is a whole lot better help defense. There are big men who are, you know, bigger than six, four, right. Who are actually challenging them around the basket. And, all of a sudden it's a different ball game in terms of, you know, the kind of quality of defense that you have to finish around. And, you know, some guys just keep that bullheaded. No, I'm going to keep charging out and keep charging out and keep charging. I mean, you know, Colin Sexton's not the right size for the example that I'm going with, but a similar no, yeah. sort of similar sort of principle, right? Of No, I'm just going to keep going. I'm, you know, almost too stubborn for my own good. And then there's, you know, guys like Jameer who, okay, that's not working let's try something different. Right. And it's working pretty well for him so far this season. Yeah. And it's pretty impressive too, because like, yeah, the percentage of shots around the basket are the same, but like he has more playmaking responsibility. So you'd almost expect there to be more lapses now uh, than there were in more of a tertiary role where he could be a little bit more selective and be a second side guy. But I think it just kind of speaks to his overall, like feel maturity and poise that like, yeah, he kind of notices the areas where he needs to get better and, and puts in the work to do it. So you noted that playmaking poise. So let's move along to mm-hmm. that. And it hasn't been as dramatic a jump as the finishing around the basket, but he's taken a pretty sizable you know, leap forward in terms of just the amount of responsibility he has been given in terms of being tasked with creating for others. And, you know, it's interesting in that, he's been so effective in pick and roll situations, you know, as a pick and roll operator, which is fascinating to me, given that so much of his skill set is complimentary. It's the kind of thing where maybe he's not the main guy running pick and roll. Right. But, you know, if you have him in a bench lineup with maybe not all that much creation, 
again, it's, you know, sort of what we've been talking about, right? A number of different avenues to NBA playing time, right? Like if you're someone who, okay, you know, I'm comfortable with him being a defensive contributor, being, you know, a shooting threat, being someone who's improving in as a finisher around the basket, but the ball gets to him and it's just a record scratch and either he's putting up a shot or, you know, he's doing the Colin Sexton bullheaded drive to the rim, right? It's something where, again, it just makes it so much easier to see where he would fit at the NBA level now that he's taken this leap forward as you know someone who's not just looking for his own shot. For sure. I think it I think it speaks really well to to like his ability to scale down and roll. Like so a lot of guys that I came across that play his position that had high assist rates are guys who really moved into a role well because a lot of the um just like the, the mental floor mapping, the ability to see the floor, know how the defense is going to move, know where your guys are at all times. Like all that stuff does translate over to a more tertiary role and in, in making those snappy 0.5 decisions and skips and reversals and things like that. Uh, so guys kind of in similar company to him in terms of assist rate where players like Herb Jones and Grant Williams and Kenrich Williams, like guys that you can count on and rely upon to not screw up if nothing else on offense. And I think when you're coming into the league, especially as an older prospect, like being able to come in and have your coach put trust in you and know that this is a guy who not only is going to, you know, make the right play, but he's not going to make a extremely wrong play either. Like he's not going to really tip over our apple cart or bring our offense to a halt or turn the ball over. Like Jameer is going to come in, uh, sort of ready for the speed of the game and and understand the the responsibility that comes with um, being on the floor and having to make decisions for others and, and set other players up. Um, and I think even just like his ability to read multiple options out of the pick and roll, it's like we talked about the change to his driving in like even in pick and roll play, it's not just like brute force, like I'm going to the rim or I'm looking for the roll man. It's like he's he's seeing a couple different options on the floor and his pass placement is really careful. Um, I think he cares about taking care of the ball and, and getting his teammates involved. And um, I, I, yeah, I just think historically these kind of guys tend to scale down and roll pretty, pretty well and, and pretty frequently. Yeah. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, sort of similar to going back to the, you know, six, six to six, eight crazy athletic guys in high school, right. A lot of, a lot of those guys, you know, the vast majority of players who are even in consideration to be, you know, in the NBA are guys who were the best player on their high school team, right? Like unless yeah, you played yeah. for Montverde or prolific prep, you were the guy almost certainly. And so, you know, another touchstone that I use for this because it's a relatively easy one is Jimmer Fredette was someone who, if he had been more willing to be an off ball guy, a floor spacer, maybe he ends up having, you know, a, relatively long NBA career as a 10 minute a game role player. Instead, it was like, no, I have to have the ball in my hands. I have to be the guy offensively. And, you know, he found a level where he could do that after college. And he's been very successful in China doing that. But it was the kind of thing where, Hey, maybe, you know, given your incredible shooting, if you'd been more willing and more able to adjust to a smaller role, you could have had a longer term career. And, for guys like Jimmy Watkins, who, you know, came into college, you know, had that VCU team where he was playing behind two future NBA guys, you know, him moving up in role to being the guy at Florida State isn't the kind of thing where, okay, next year comes around, and he won't be willing to scale back down, right? We've seen, you know, yes. there's evidence that he's been successful in that sort of a smaller role and that he's been willing to make that sort of scaling down move that, you know, some players never really make at all. Yeah, I think that's a really important point and something that, again, like just kind of draws me to him is that we've seen him play that role with no ego before. And like Ace Baldwin and Jaden Nunn are tremendous college players. And I think I think like Jaden Nunn's like a real NBA prospect, too. I think I like him a lot more than a lot of people, but I like Jaden Nunn a lot. Um, I think Jameer, even last year, like in my opinion, was probably the best NBA prospect on that team by the end of the season. And like, he didn't play like it, like he didn't play. And when I say that, I mean, like he didn't play as if like, Hey, I better have the ball because I'm the best NBA prospect right, yeah. on this team. He, he acted as if, um, you know, he was, he was a part of the team and he was trying to play winning basketball. So I think the fact that we have seen him scale back and that he has shown those connective chops matters in the sense that yes, he has these skills where he can be a guy that runs pick and roll, 
but he's also not a guy that needs to run pick and roll and needs to have the ball in his hands because I think there is sort of that inverse that you mentioned, like there are these guys that um, come into college and, and they've been the best guy for a long time and they get to have the ball a lot. And then when they need to scale down, it can, it can be sort of troublesome. I think about a guy like, um, and I think he's had some issues with injury and things like that, but like Chance Westry was a guy, a guy that I liked to come out of high school a lot last year, like six, six solid athlete could really put it on the floor. could really make plays for others and goes to Auburn. And like, they just don't have that role available for him. Like they have a slew of point guards that are better at doing those things than him. And he couldn't really shoot. So that wasn't really a role either. And now like, you just can't really do anything with Jameer. He's shown that like, if you need me to just be like a skip it or attack or shoot at guy, I can do that. So it's, it's encouraging. And it is interesting because, you know, one of those guys that he was behind that first year at VCU was someone who had a very similar profile in Vince Williams, right? As yeah. someone who, you know, came to VCU, didn't start, played a role off the bench over time, got more and more responsibility, got more and more ball in his hands, was relied upon more and more as a passer and, you know, became an NBA player from there, right? It's, yeah, you know, and it's really starting to click as one in like the last couple of weeks too. Like it's, it's really starting to carve out a spot on a Grizzlies team that has like needed guys in that like two exactly. four position group too. So it, it shows that, Hey, a lot of times that healable for the next level. So let's move on to talking about the defense for Watkins. And, you know, this is, I guess, sort of the easiest translation for his athleticism in the way of, you know, we're seeing the improvements for him around the basket. And certainly he's had some athletic finishes on the tape that, you know, show that he's able to, you know, leverage his athletic tools well. But it's the kind of thing where some players, they much e- much more easily leverage their athletic tools on one end of the floor than the other. And for Watkins, it's a lot easier, at least for me, to see on the defensive end. Yeah, yeah, he is really great on that side of the floor. <laughs> um, just like one of those guys that like steal and block rates always check out. But then you watch the film and like, he's not a guy who is tallying up numbers by virtue of just like occasionally gambling and making the right play. Yeah. A lot of it comes by just playing good defense. Like he can really play tight on guys because his feet are so good. He's really good with his hands. He's really long. He's hard to shake. Like on an Island, he is just a nightmare to deal with. Like the stat that I mentioned uh, in, in this article and the no zone on turn one is it uh, at VCU last year, he guarded 20 isolation possessions for synergy and opponents scored five points, but had six turnovers on those possessions. Like, this is just not a guy that is easy to beat. He does a great job of staying in front. I love him in, in like, ball screen switches because he is so aggressive. And it's just, like, hard to get him off of you. Like, you can throw counters at him and whatever, but, like, he's not a guy that you can separate from uh, blow by or like, there's just not a convenient way to deal with him. Everything is going to come tough if he is guarding you on a given night. And yeah, with, with his size and athleticism, it, it feels like a pretty safe projection to just say that if nothing else, the NBA level, he'll be like a solid defender at worst. I, I'd imagine yeah. probably be a plus defender in time. But um, like, that is the one thing that like, I don't think you have to worry about at all in terms of scaling up would be the defense. It's interesting. The steal and block rate, I, I do want to circle back to that. With steals rate, it's something that sort of similarly to three-point shooting, I have some struggles evaluating because on the one hand, you know, the one thing that I always carry with me is steal rates from college slash EuroLeague slash non-NBA translate to the NBA. It's a very close match. I mean, mm-hmm. the number that I always remember when I saw it, which was, you know, at least five years ago at this point, um, but number might be slightly different now is what I'm trying to say, but basically like 90% translation rate from college steals rate to the NBA. But the flip side of that is the exact point you brought up of, well, some guys have those really high steal rates because they're gambling every play, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Russell Westbrook is someone who, okay, you know, he gets a lot of steals because he's trying to jump passing lanes. And for every steal that he gets, there are three, you know, easy backdoor cuts that he gives up because he's trying to jump the passing lane, right? And so it's the kind of thing where just purely looking at the steals numbers is, you know, something that I've taught myself to trend away from over time because you know you have to there's a film portion of it too of okay but how are you getting those steals right 100 and, and with walk-ins it's you know it's good on both counts right both you know the film checks out with what the stats are telling me 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's like really important because yeah, I I think a lot of times people will throw around steal rate and like I I throw it around too, but you need to like you need to really take into consideration like how that steal rate is getting there because there are prospects. Like I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but like there are prospects. I already threw bus, Russell Westbrook under the bus. It's fine. Sure. Well, yeah, I don't I don't I, I'm fine with that. Like it's more just like prospects. Like I hate being like this pro. Yeah. I think this prospect stinks before they yeah. pay a lot of money. Uh, throw a Hall of Famer but, under the bus, not some yeah, you know yeah, yeah, teen year old kid. Russell Westbrook's not starving. He'll be yeah. all right. Uh, <laughs> He'll be fine. Yeah, like but there are guys like in this class that like have a high steal rate right now, and then you watch the tape and it's like oh no, like this guy is a straight up bad defender like not even like oh like well he gambles sometimes and you know there's things that come with it like because like tari eason was a guy where like yeah he would gamble sometimes but like i didn't i was never like tari eason is a bad defender but like there are guys (laughs) i steal rate that are um and yeah with with watkins you go into the film and yeah like there's just very rarely instances especially this year where he is in a bit more of a like reserved role um, I think in some ways it's almost helped his instincts defensively, like knowing like I can't be making every single energy play. Like it's going to have to come by virtue of doing what is sort of right and fundamental. Um, but yeah, I think he's, he's really kind of figuring out that balance of, of how to stay within himself. Uh, and, he, and not that it wasn't a huge issue before, but I think this year he's done a really nice job of that. Um, historically always done a good job in ball screens too. Um, a guy that can, you know, blow up handoffs from time to time and things like that. So uh just a guy that whatever the nba throws at him on that side i feel pretty good about it good off ball attentiveness good on the ball good discipline i I like everything about it i think part of it also you know and this particularly comes to mind for me with tari eason is scheme of it right like Mm -hmm. tari eason got a lot of steals and you know maybe not all of them were because it was the perfectly correct defensive play to make on that possession Mm -hmm. but you know, what he was asked to do was a lot of, you know, playing free safety, being the guy who, you know, is tasked with trying to make plays defensively, right? And so, you know, that's something that comes into play with some of it. But I think the flip side of that, too, is, you know, there are a lot of these guys who, as you mentioned, who are bad defenders, who have very high steals rates because they're not doing what they're supposed to be in the scheme. They're not sticking with their guy. They're looking for the ball. They're trying to find the ball. And, you know, it's, something that you see less with blocks, but you know, there are the Has- the Hassan white sides of the world, the guys who are, you know, chasing after every possible shot blocking opportunity who, mm-hmm. you know, overall maybe aren't helping their defense, even if they're getting three blocks a game, right. It's the kind of thing where sometimes, you know, you're doing what you can in the scheme. Sometimes it's you're playing great defense and sometimes you're ripping the ball away from guys or reading the passing lane correctly. And sometimes it's just, I'm going to make 10 gambles and, two of them are going to pay off. And so I'm going to finish the game with two steals and eight of them are going to be easy backdoor cuts. And, you know, I'm just going to pretend that part didn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. That's, it's a common thing. It's, it's a common occurrence. And yeah, for anyone that's getting into scouting, like be careful with steal rate to not, don't let that guide your evaluation. Let it be a tool in your evaluation, but never just proclaim somebody a good defender because the steal rate is high. So let's move on to the conclusion before we get into some of the quick hits at the end of the piece. And, you know, you didn't specifically write this segment for me and Corey, but I think we both yeah. appreciate it. You know, bring up Jaime Hawkes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I think it's a similar principle, and it's one that I talked about. I might have actually talked about it with Jaime Hawkes specifically, but how Jay Crowder made a substantial difference in how I evaluate prospects because he was someone who, you know, four years senior, right. You know, spent time at a Juco, uh, you know, was someone who had a very long path to get to the point that he was at, but he was someone who can do a lot of things on the floor and, you know, wasn't a perfect player by any means, but didn't have one glaring, glaring hole in his game. And, was very productive, you know, one, one, uh, conference player of the year. I'm trying to remember, <laughs> but you know, the kind of thing where he had a very widely varied skill set. There are a lot of different ways that he could work out, you know, defense first kind of player with good complementary offensive skills and mm-hmm. went in the second round. And in hindsight, you know, now that he's been a decade plus NBA player did a lot better than guys who were taken in the lottery. Right. And it's the kind of thing yeah. where, there's sort of a line that I'm drawing more and more towards the sides of just guys who are skilled guys who can play yeah, right. Guys uh, who basketball. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and especially in this year's draft class of like, how much am I willing to bet on just 
complete roll of the dice versus maybe this guy is never going to be, I mean, with Jaime, I thought he, never mind. We, we're not talking about Jaime here, but you know, the idea being, okay, he's someone who can play basketball, who I fully have confidence in being able to play a 10 minute a game role. I think the rate at which people should be willing to value that kind of player despite age concerns, despite potential upside concerns is, look, if you're taking a guy at, say, you know, you're talking about him early second round, right? I'm not quite that high on him at the moment, but I very well might get there with how this class is looking. You're talking about early second round. How many of those guys even make the league at all, right? With someone like Jameer, you're taking a much better bet than if you're saying, you know, I really believe in... You know, and this is unfair for other reasons, but, you know, I really believe in his teammate, Baba Miller, figuring it all out, putting it all together. You know, which of those guys should I take a bet on if I'm a team in the early second round that just desperately needs someone who can play a role and help the team? Yeah, and I think that's something I've been thinking about in terms of my draft philosophy a lot the last couple of years is trying to figure out which gambles and risks are and are not worth it. Because, like, most of the gambles that are worth gambling on go in the first round. Mm-hmm. Like there has not really been a home run swing pick in the second. That was like a non-productive college player. That's paid off. The guys who've hit are your Jalen Brunson's your Andrew Nemhard's like even a guy like Mitchell Robinson, who's like maybe thought to be a little bit more upside. It's just like a very clear cut. Like, well, that's what this guy, like I know what his role is going to be. Like it's the guys who are a little bit more clear cut that tend to slip. I think where, where Jameer differs from a guy like a, a Crowder or like a Jaime is like they were just a little bit more productive than sure. he was across the board. And like Jaime was on better teams and that matters. Um, but I, I do think the general principle of NBA size, NBA strength, NBA mind um, when like the production and like shooting splits are there and like the, the defense is there is like maybe don't overthink that too much. Like maybe that's just a guy that you should be drafting. Um with a guy like Jaime, obviously, like he he'd been on better teams, like the points per game total, which I know like points per game isn't like a great stat, but like it does matter that like he has a lot of ways and can get his own uh at a bunch of different levels on the court. Like he did that. Um Jameer's not the same score, doesn't have the setups that Jaime has. Um, a guy like Jay Crowder is unbelievably strong, probably stronger than Jameer Watkins is, even though Jameer Watkins is not like lacking for strength. Um, so that's where like, those are the things that I think to have him kind of in that early second for me. But I do think in a draft like this, if there are just guys that aren't producing that are sliding into the second, I, I, I think you always want to be careful to not be like too risk averse and and don't get like uncreative. Like you don't want to draft a guy that's that's older and just been around because they have like decent sets in college. Ideally, you want somebody who's kind of blown it out of the water for a little bit. Uh, but I think Jameer is is starting to become one of those guys where in the second round, you can look at him and say, hey, Maybe this guy's never going to be a starter, but when I turn to the first couple of guys off my bench, I want wings and I want wings that can do a lot of stuff and do them really well. And I think that's where, where Jameer is kind of positioning himself. Yeah. I mean, that lends back to the whole lineup versatility thing, right? Of if I'm looking down the end of my bench, like, you know, am I going to throw, well, I mean, it depends on the team context, obviously, but you know, am I going to throw in the you know, 19 year old who looks like a deer on skates and hope he figures it out or, you know, and especially with NBA coaching and the NBA coaching carousel being what it is like, Mm -hmm. am I going to risk my job, you know, throwing minutes to this, you know, 19 year old second round pick, or am I going to look to the end of the bench and see, Hey, I know that if I send Jameer Watkins out there for 10 minutes a game, I will get something useful. You know, maybe it'll game where his shots not on. Okay, great. He'll throw in all that much more effort on the defensive end. You know, maybe it'll be a game where, you know, he's being left more wide open because, you know, they see him as the fifth most threatening guy on the court. Okay, great. He's going to, you know, attack closeouts when people come at him. He's going to shoot the open shot when he gets it right. It's the kind of thing where, there are many different players that he could work around and they're such a high floor to his game that it makes it easier to see, you know, coaches in particular buying in, but you know, even for GMs to be like, you know what, we really need this 37th pick to be someone who will be in our rotation cheap for the next four years. I think Jameer Watson is uh, Jameer Watkins is someone going to take a chance off for that. For sure. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. And I think, 
organizationally, it's going to be like different front office by front office, right? Because like you might be a team like Oklahoma City and you're looking at this and saying like, hey, we really trust our developmental staff. And like maybe we are going to take one of these guys that is a bit of a gamble in the second round and just take our time with them because we don't really need super urgent help right now. We're competing as it is. We can afford to, to roll the dice a little bit and we like what we've done. But the fact of the matter is most NBA teams are not patient and don't have a great developmental track record when it comes to guys that weren't good in college. Like they're just aren't a lot of them. And we've seen so many guys come to the league unprepared that just straight up get caught like during yeah. their first year. And it, it's, it's, it's a really talent filled league right now. And there are a lot of guys that fall victim to that. And teams are, are quick to move on. Like even guys, there've been guys that like, um, like a guy like Justin Lewis, um, mm-hmm. who we were talking about in our chat the other day, like got released yeah. by the bulls, like injured for a year, slow start. And then just like, bam you're gone like he's not really even gotten an opportunity to play for his nba team and and he was productive and, and was a good college player but like teams aren't patient and i think a lot of times that can be overlooked and i think teams teams aren't patient but they they'll act like they are like they'll draft a guy that's a project anyway and then just cut the guy later and a lot of times you're better off just taking a guy that you know you can play so i i think it's worth considering guys like jameer Watkins a little bit earlier in the draft cycle and getting your film in on him now as opposed to like at the last second seeing him shoot up the boards because he has a good combine early all right so before we wrap this up i just wanted to touch on a couple of the quick hits that you had here mm-hmm. so just first of all um so that we can get this conversation out of the way Terrence Stanton Jr. I it's ah, it's, I no it's no Godfather three. Just when I thought that was out, they pulled me back <laughs> in. It's like that's been me with Terrence Shannon for three years now. I just I, I can't I I can't, but I also know for a fact that he's going to be in my top sixty at the end of the year, I'm and gonna I'm not going to feel great about it. Yeah, yeah, like I'm going to have to. Like it's yeah. I I had him and McCuller like so low on my preseason boards because I was like I given you guys so many opportunities to prove it and now it's like well yeah. i guess i guess they are this time so that's that's that um yeah terry shannon's a, a tough nut to crack because i think he's so much like less disciplined than a guy like jameer watkins but like when he yeah. is on the defense is tremendous um and if he is like this shooter now then like yeah then like i guess he's an nba player i've always just struggled with him so much because he's always been wildly inconsistent and my train of thought with him has always been like, he will never be consistent enough to hold down an NBA role. Like he will probably be on rosters forever because he just is an NBA athlete and he's NBA size. And like, he can do enough things to like, just not embarrass himself on a night to night basis. But I've never been convinced that he could be a guy that's six in a rotation. But if he shoots like this probably is like a guy that plays minutes most nights on most NBA teams. And that's really hard to wrap my head around, but I think it might be time to just, potentially accept that as fact but who knows the three-point percentage is already starting to trail off so so we'll see yeah that's where it is it's just (laughs) if he shoots at that high level the rest of his inconsistencies aren't gonna be big enough to override everything else that he brings but Mm -hmm. this this is like time 73 that i've been like oh is this it is this it is this great finally puts it together is this great finally puts it together and it's like there's only so many times that you know, I'm not quite Charlie Brown after time 74 of the football being, you know, fool me, uh, fool me 72 times. Shame on you. Right. <laughs> well, I was so sold on him after he had that hot start to his junior season. And then, or was it his junior year? Or so- oh, yeah. His junior season, the one at yeah. Texas tech. And like, he was red hot from three and then he was injured. And then like, he came back and lost his rotation spot and I was like, no, like prior to like the game where he got hurt, he was he in like those four games, he was like making all this threes and like he's just not making them now because like his role is uncertain. And like I would be frustrated, too. I completely understand why he's having like a rough second half of the year. Like I made every excuse in the book for him. And then like last year he started off hot. And then by the time conference play came around, it's like, all right, well, like teams can just leave him open now. Like he's not going to yeah. they don't have to worry about him making threes. So, ah. Uh, He's, he's frustrating. I, I, and like, in some ways, like it would almost be easier for me as an evaluator if, if he were to tail off, like, but I, I don't want that. Like I want him to succeed yeah. and have a great NBA career. So like, I've got to, I've got to ask for him to make it hard on me. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this earlier, but 
you know, I wrote an article about how a huge part of why I love evaluating the draft so much is the idea of hope, the idea of, you know, oh, he'll figure it out, you know, just take these couple shots out of his game, move them here, just, you know, slight improvements as a shooter, that kind of thing. It's like this year in particular, it's very easy to test that sort of, you know, trying to look into it with hope. The flip side of that being like, I do want to try and do the job properly. So I can't just be pure optimism all the time. But someone like Terrence Shannon Jr. is like, the good moments just make me be like, yes, yes, he's starting to get there. He's figuring it out. He's figuring it out. And then just, you know, he yanked the football again. I know. But like, and like the volume is so high this year too, that it's like, he's taking like 11 per hundred possessions. Like yeah. I, it's hard to be like, well, the percentage is high, but he's not taking them and he's getting easy ones. Like this is a, a really impressive feat that he's uh, putting out there from three. So going to be, going to be hard to monitor, but I I'm rooting for him. I am rooting for him as well. Funnily enough, let's close out with almost the opposite kind of frustration in my mind with Otega Oe of yeah. Oklahoma, who, you know, we were talking about sort of box score watching with steals earlier. If you just look at the line of 65, 75, 74, you know, that almost He's the best offensive player in the country. Yeah, exactly. It's like you know, 15 <laughs> points a game on those kind of splits, right? And it's like, well, uh, okay, but like, you know, that's 12 three-pointers, right? It's like almost the most obvious possible example of that Derek Williams principle of like, guarantee you that if he takes more than 12 there, he's going to be below 75%. It's just, man, I mean, the tools are so clearly there. And, you know, the motor is there, which, you know, combine the tools with the motor, you know, leads to a very good defender. But it's the kind of thing where, man, that, you know, there's one part of me that's like, you know, what are you doing? He's, you know, 15 points a game in 25 and a half minutes. It's like, yeah, okay, but that's a 10 game sample size. And there's no way that those percentages hold at all. And looking at the film, it's like, does he really do enough for an offense? If the shot isn't falling at a ridiculous rate that I don't expect it to continue to. And so I'm with you on being among the more skeptical, let's say, of the no ceilings crowd about where, you know, always actually at at this point in his career. I yeah, I'm there with you. And I think like he certainly hasn't been bad against the good teams they've played. Like he's actually been good. And that's like, yeah. why I mentioned in the article. Like I do think he is a real long term NBA prospect. Um, but like, yeah, the volume from three is very, very low. The shot doesn't have anything like clearingly wrong with it. But the numbers against those teams are a little bit more subdued. Like you look at the game against Iowa, like, okay, he has four steals in that one, but then like one steal against USC, a steal and a block against Providence, no steals and blocks against Arkansas. Like in these games, he's very efficient and like he's excellent in this kind of cleanup, dirty work energy role in college. To your point as well, I love the tools, like six foot five and like a legit 210. Like he is just built like a, a big NBA player, not a normal one, but a big six foot five NBA player. Yeah. Um, ridiculous nose for the glass. I'm just like not sure. Am I getting like, am I? am I drafting like Javante green? Like, is that what I'm getting? And like, I don't mean that as like a slight, like Javante green's obviously like, there's a reason that he's been on a bunch of different NBA teams. And it's because like, yeah, like you can play Javante green in the NBA game. And like, that's fine. Like, but if that's what OA is, I'm not sure that I'm like hyped about that. And like, he's, he's turned it over quite a bit in these games against good teams, four turnovers against Providence, four against USC. Like I don't really trust him as a passer. Um, and I think that rule at that height is just really hard to navigate if you're not at least occasionally taking threes. Like I need to see him shoot more threes than one per game. You always talk about how much you hate having to do NBA comps and yet the Javante green one is perfect. I think that's the exact example. It's like, okay, he's someone who you can throw out there, I guess, for five minutes to be an injury, you know, replacement to be the 14th man on your bench. Right. But it's like, Mm -hmm. If that's all you are, how much draft capital, if any, do you want to spend on that kind thing. of player? It's it's like it's a kind of like a swing higher predicament for me, where it's like there are guys I'm a little bit more okay missing on, and like maybe OA like does become a legit shooter because like if he is like a forty percent three point shooter, even with like some of his uh, like passing limitations, it's like okay, well he is then then he's like a more impactful version of like what Seth Lundy was at Penn state. And then like, then maybe that's a guy that I can talk myself into, but with the shot being what it is, it's just really hard to 
get that excited about him. Cause yeah, he is that, yeah. Like it's just, it, he feels very Javante green to me. Like he feels very like multi-positional defender, high energy, doesn't quite have the size to be an every night player on a great team, but like can play on a good team and like be fine. Like he's not going to kill you out there. Like that's, that's just where I am with him. And I feel like there's a lot of guys that I'd rather bet on, even if they're not as productive at this point. Um, so that's kind of what I've struggled with with him. I, I would like him a lot more if he just took another year to like prove that he could shoot a little bit and, and start to make better decisions with the ball. All right. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap this one up? Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Brandon Angel at it, it, uh, Stanford, who I think is like a sneaky guy who could be like a combine riser type. And then uh, Kevin Cross at Tulane, uh, who has been spectacular. He had back-to-back triple doubles. And like I, then I saw the set after the article went out that I think he's one of like three players ever to have back-to-back 25-point triple doubles in college. So he's one of those guys where he's an older prospect, but like will 1,000% be at Portsmouth. And is a guy who's like 6'8 and is just going to have way better feel than everybody on the court. I think there's a chance that he might like dice that event up and like really start to make a push um with Tulane being the American too like we'll get to see him against like solid competition pretty soon uh so yeah those are two guys I want to kind of single out it's like older prospects that I think if we get a draft like last year's where there's like a lot of retreat at the last second could suddenly like be really really in the mix did you plug Angel just because of the pun you made in the article I did yes that was a big part of it I I had to (laughs) I had to do it like it was like it went in the the pun wasn't intentional as I typed it then I was like that that was good. We're we're keeping it in. Yeah, that 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 one makes the edit cut. I say that much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. All right. Well, he is Maxwell Baumbach. You can find his written work on NoSealingsNBA.com, and you can find him on Twitter at Boards. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoSealingsNBA.com as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback on the deep dive specific portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.